When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Well, good morning. How's the form today? Lots to discuss, including how one man took a notion last Wednesday and drove to every Supermax Plaza in the country to rate their burgers. Well, you'll hear his verdict in around half an hour. A massive ruling from the European Court of Justice on the Graham Dwyer case could have implications for other criminals who are behind bars. We'll tell you what they have decided. And a rare condition, inclusion body meiosis. Have you heard of it? I have to admit it's a new one on me and it's something that a family from Eden Derry are on a steep learning curve about. Plus what Michael O'Leary intends to do with all of his money. That and more between now and 12. When you call... 0818 300 103 is my number. You can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. On the front pages today, ooh, this isn't going to be popular. You know the €1,000 COVID bonus that some frontline workers were receiving? I emphasise some because there are many who may not have had direct contact with COVID patients, but who still worked in hospitals, for instance, or worked in supermarkets, or worked in other jobs in which they were in day-to-day contact with the public, and they're not getting it, and you might be one of them and not feeling particularly happy. But even if you are a nurse or a doctor or somebody who was in direct contact with COVID patients and you're eligible for the money, you're not going to get it until the end of June, so says the Irish Independent on its front page today. And it's taking time to process, according to the Department of Health. And they're in discussions with unions at the moment. On the front of the Irish Times, a stark warning from the United Nations. That tipping point for climate change, the magical one and a half degrees we don't want to go beyond for global warming. They say we now only have three years left if we wish to avoid the worst impact of climate change. In other words, it's now or never. So, how might we achieve this? Well, the journal.ie details some of the recommendations from the UN, and you can boil it down rather simply. Eat less meat and avoid long-haul travel. Now, the latter is probably easy enough. Let's fly to Australia a bit less or to the States a bit less. Uh, eating meat? That, that's not going to go down well in an agricultural country like Ireland, especially not in a region such as the Midlands. And another they're suggesting is you can change your internal combustion engine car to an electric car, which is well and good if you've got the money to do that. Electric cars aren't exactly cheap. And really, what they need to figure out is what the carrot should look like. Stick alone is not going to solve this. Anyway, that's in the journal if you wish to read it today. Michael O'Leary won't be terribly happy about people taking fewer flights. He's interviewed in the Irish Independent in which he predicts prices are going up in the summer months. But if you book a Ryanair flight this month or in May, it'll be between 5 and 10% cheaper than it was 
pre-COVID. But once demand increases through the summer, July, August and September, he's expecting the prices to be about 10% higher than they were before the pandemic. He also is interviewed about his children and he's quoting the greatest investor ever, Warren Buffett, and his maxim was, you should leave your children enough so they can do anything, but not enough that they can do nothing. So Michael O'Leary intends to give them a nice house and up to 250 acres of land to farm. And that would be it. He says he likes the land and he hopes in time his children will become young farmers. They'll get their green certs and we'll be able to pass to them a reasonable quantity of land and whether they want to farm it or not at that stage, it's up to them. His eldest son is studying ag science and it's something Michael says he's extremely proud of. By the way, he's not planning to retire anytime soon. His current contract is up in two years' time. He's 61 years of age and he says he has no plans to step down if the board of Ryanair will keep him on. Now, the big talking point this week will be the appearance tomorrow of the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, before the houses of the Oireachtas. It starts at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. On the topics of discussion, Ukraine's request to become a member of the European Union. And all TDs, naturally, have been invited. Also, all ambassadors who have a residence in Ireland, including the Russian ambassador, Yuri Filatov. Somehow, I suspect Mr Filatov isn't going to be there. He won't be listening. Well, he probably will be listening, but he won't be there in person. You won't see the look on his face when the various remarks are made. The story here at home regarding Ukraine is that many of the refugees who were taken in by families into their homes in recent weeks, many of them have returned to facilities that were offering temporary accommodation because families were unable to cope. No reflection on the Ukrainians, by the way. But for instance, there's a a volunteer, Tricia Nolan, quoted in the Irish Times, and she says there's a real fear that families don't know what they're getting into, that it is emotionally draining. Kids can be resilient in these situations, but it's the older people, and to see how devastated they are, that's what's particularly draining on families. And she describes in her own situation, she was only getting two hours sleep every night. She'd wake worrying that perhaps she sent somebody on the wrong bus or otherwise misdirected them. She says she's only starting to sleep again now. So, in other words, know what you're signing up for. Now, away from that, the health service is going to be a big talking point this week because, if you recall, 20 years ago it was decided we don't need health boards anymore. Why have regional knowledge? Let's just centralise all into the almighty HSE. Here we are, now proposing to have six regional health areas, which by any name is bringing back the health boards. The Midlands will be in Area B. Longford, Westmeath, Offaly, Leash, Kildare, parts of Dublin and Wicklow will all be lumped together in Area B. So we're going back to what we used to do. 
except they're saying the HSE will continue to exist, but a lean form is promised with less management and bureaucracy. We shall see, bearing in mind that all the staff have guaranteed public sector contracts. So they'll be redeployed, they'll be given new titles. Will it actually be slimmer, leaner, meaner? With time will tell. Now, the public sector is going to start negotiation with the Department of Public Expenditure this week. The various unions will be asking for a bigger pay rise than had been planned for October. If you're a public servant, 1% of an increase was due to come in October. But because of inflation, the unions have triggered a clause in the previous pay deal that allows for a review if circumstances change substantially. And because of COVID and because of the war in Ukraine and various other contributing factors, inflation is going through the roof. Life is becoming very expensive and they believe it's time for the government to write a bigger cheque to the various public servants and a bigger increase than 1% is being sought. And apparently both sides are confident they can reach a deal before the end of the summer. What will they be settling on? According to a government source, there's no way they're getting 6 or 7% to match inflation. That's just not going to happen. And one of the reasons it's not going to happen is Ireland needs to remain competitive, they say. We have to keep wages at a level that multinationals can afford to compete with. And that brings us to the Irish Independent and a big interview today with Martin Shanahan. He's the guy who leads the IDA the agency that has to attract the Intels and the Hewlett-Packards and the Googles and so on to Ireland. And he would like to see tax decreases. Well, join the club there, Martin. I'm sure everybody would like to pay less tax. But he feels that's how we compete. We have a very competitive corporation tax, even at 15%, which has gone up slightly. But it's the worker. It's the person who has to pay out their income tax, their VAT, their local property tax, their fuel taxes. That's what's becoming anti-competitive, he feels, versus many other developed countries which are also trying to get the investment. We shall see in time whether there's room to lower taxes. Now, the final story. On a lighter note, what is the most attractive scent in the world? Well, a study by Oxford University has revealed the answer to be vanilla. Hmm, vanilla's nice. Wouldn't necessarily have put it top of the list. But they've said it smelled like uh, a sweet aroma for all cultures, all ethnicities. You see, some, depending on how you grow up and where you grow up, certain scents might be offensive. But vanilla was the most pleasing to all. Contrasted with isovaleric acid, that is the most hated smell. Now, what is isovaleric acid? Think cheesy feet. You've gotten that really bad foot smell. That's isovaleric acid. Can't disagree with that one, all right. Yeah, no, there are many other contenders, too, for the worst smell. Uh, B.O., you know. Have you been running lately? Is that your new deodorant? Tuesday the 5th of April and only weeks to go until the Westmeath Bachelor Festival returns. And I see the judges have been announced. Some big names in here. Diren Garrahy, 
Nathan Carter, Anne Doyle and Louis Walsh. And of course, the bachelors themselves will be there, along with the hosts, Shane Barkey and Sarah Jane Foster. So the weekend is shaping up to be a must-attend in Mullingar. Great to have festivals back and to have dates on the calendar to look forward to. What is your favourite song to clean to? Because, again, they ask all sorts of questions in surveys, the weird and the wonderful, and the conclusion is... Well, I'll tell you in about half an hour what the favourite song the nation has picked to be the best cleaning song of all time. But please do vote for yours and we might even get the chance to play it between now and 12. Now, in the papers this morning, there are warnings, it would be too strong a word, but you're being encouraged to consider what you're getting into if you have signed up to house a family from Ukraine. Not because the families are unruly or difficult to deal with, but simply because they've come through a harrowing experience and many volunteers who've taken in families have subsequently asked them to move on to other accommodation because it was too emotionally draining, particularly watching elderly people who have escaped the conflict but are so devastated by its effects. And for many, this is going to be maybe a six-month commitment, could be a 12-month commitment. We just don't know how long the process will take to try and bring peace to Ukraine and to return many of these people to their homes. But that assumes, of course, that if you have volunteered accommodation, that you've already had contact from the Red Cross and that you've had visitors to your home. Not so for Michael Clark. He's got a house in Streamstown and he pledged to make it available to Ukrainian refugees, but is still waiting many weeks later. Michael, good morning. Good morning, Will. Let's go back to the beginning. Why did you make this decision to give a property to people who, yes, need it, but uh, again, given the backdrop, what, why did it personally matter to you? Well, Will, just to go back a little bit further I, uh, two years ago or just over a year ago we applied to foster children from um, Syria when that war was going on right okay so we we were there we were in a, in, in, in a system we've applied right? uh, the final paperwork for that was only completed last week <laughs> yeah okay so two so, years so, later um, Two years later, the final paperwork was, yeah, due to COVID restrictions, we were told. Anyway, a couple of weeks ago when this all this happened, we said, OK, look, we've, we've applied to one for fostering, so let's put the house up again for um, refugees. And first of all, we found it very difficult to get onto the website because all the Red Cross thing, I, I understand they were just looking for donations all the time, but then we eventually found it and... Um, we, uh, we we logged in and we put the house up, the, told them exactly what we had in accommodation, and we heard nothing. So my wife rang a number and said, look, we've done this and we haven't heard from you. And she le- actually, she didn't get to speak to anybody. She left her number on a message. Mm. And I think a day or two later, someone rang up and said, OK, we got your message here. Uh, what are you 
pledging. So we told them that we've, we've, we've been on the site. They said, OK, we'll be in touch. I think we've had one phone, one, one phone call back since to say, oh, we'll be in touch again. That's it. Now, I know initially they were sorting through some of the offers and prioritising based on maybe the size of the accommodation, yeah. proximity to services. So what did you put on the table for them? Well, we uh, uh, have a large house here. Um, it can be separated into two. Uh, so basically, we have uh, two bedrooms which can sleep up to nine people. OK, well, that's okay. a sizable amount, yes. Yeah. And, OK, we would share the kitchen facilities. Uh, they have a separate sitting room. They have a separate uh, television. Everything is separate on the other side of the... It's a sort of an L-shaped house. We, now, they can join us down here, down the back, in our part of the house. Um, yes, but everybody would have their space and their dignity. Everybody would it have sounds their space. Yeah. Uh, now, now, we are in Streamstown. It is a little bit isolated, uh, we have a school which is five uh, hundred meters away. There's a pub eight hundred meters away, but there's no shops. Uh, the nearest shop would be Horsleap, which is uh, two and a half miles away, or Castletown Gagan, which is uh, three miles mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. You know. But suffice to say, if somebody was staying with you, Michael, and they needed something, you could get it for them, or it could be arranged anyway. It, 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 yeah. Um, we have a large w- freezer. We actually have <laughs> two other fridges in the house, and the, you know, uh, like when I we prior to this, prior to uh, last year, or prior to COVID, sorry, prior to COVID, we were a very well established Airbnb for over seven years. So we have had people from all over the world here, large amounts and small amounts. So you're well used to managing the needs yeah. of people who stay with you, in other words. And exactly, yeah. One yeah. would assume that it would be an attractive offer for the Red Cross and you're left scratching your head about why you've only had... Is it is one call so far, is it? Yes. And that call was a loose end. It didn't say you'd, you'd expect uh, to hear by a certain date what was no. happening. They said we will be back in touch and hopefully we'll get someone to come out and have a look at the property. But that was two weeks ago. Are you feeling any sense of regret now at making oh. the offer? Or You're certainly frustrated, I can tell that. No, I'm not. Uh, no, no, the, the offer is still there. Um, but what I'm saying is, maybe it is because we are remote. and But there are country people who would, from Ukraine, who would... Love this area here, and you know, I'm sure they're in a situation in Ukraine where they have to travel miles to the shops, and you know, no, no, uh, it's no burden on us to bring people anywhere to either Mullingar, Tullamore, or Athlone if they want to do shopping. Hmm. Well, look, I would imagine if roles were reversed and you were going to Ukraine and you were given the choice about staying in let's say, a large sports hall with questionable heating, with practically no partitions or or, or privacy, but it was beside the shop. And the alternative was a house such as yours, and it was a short drive, and you had somebody willing to bring you. Which would you choose? I would take the house, because uh, I would feel it more personal to be with somebody that uh, wanted you you, uh, you understand uh, like we're grandparents you know 
so, you know, we, we've reared two families, if you know what I mean, uh, going from uh, our own children to our grandchildren. So, and we, we have time on our hands now and we have space. And we just like to give back hmm. something. And if I can refer to the story in the paper this morning, have you considered in depth what you're signing up for as far as the emotional toll it will take? Yes, uh, we understand some people might come and they might have um, trauma, you know, uh, they might... Uh, resent being away from home for such a long time. They might be uh, afraid to uh, um, mingle. But we're, we're, we're prepared for anything. We're prepared for everything. Yeah. All right, Michael, we'll make a few inquiries of the Red Cross. I know there's a hierarchy and they are trying to prioritise the accommodation that's closest to facilities. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, we were hearing last week of a memo brought to Cabinet suggesting there simply wasn't enough accommodation in the system. So one doesn't equate with the other. Something is missing here. Yeah. Just just another forethought. Well, um, a couple of years ago, when we applied for um, put the house for um, fostering refugees, uh, within a couple of miles from us, 81 refugees were housed in this temple spa. You know, yes. none for houses, but... In 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 a in a, an area where uh, previously only thirty one people were allowed to stay over weekend, now there's eighty one there, and we were available. So why put that many people in one place and then not take up the facilities that um, were offered? Well, sometimes the left hand doesn't know what the right is doing when it comes to the state. I think so. Michael, take care. Thank you for the call. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time. That's Michael Clark from Streamstown, 0818 103. If you're in the same position, if you've contacted the Red Cross, made the offer of accommodation and are still at a loose end, waiting and waiting and waiting for the phone to ring. This is the opposite of what Michael Clark just described. Louise in Abbey Leaks, you've a granny flat and contacted the Red Cross to say it was available. They never came out to inspect the property but you received a phone call to say that people from Ukraine would arrive within the next six days. And you haven't been told if it's children, if it's elderly people. And given that the premises hasn't been checked, you find it very unfair on those who are arriving because it's likely there's some accommodation out there that won't be up to standards. So it's bizarre, isn't it? Again, greatest of respect and, and sympathy indeed to the Red Cross in trying to manage this situation which, of course, was foisted upon everybody and nobody could plan for in advance. But if they need perhaps additional admin staff or indeed volunteers, I'm sure there'd be no shortage in getting them to make sure that those who've expressed an interest receive a phone call, that enough inspections are done. If they need a dig out, if they need an extra pair of hands, they won't be left wanting, that's for sure. Notions, notions, notions. Next, you'll meet a man who got a notion last week to drive to every Supermax plaza in the country for one reason and one reason only. That reason is next. Do you ever get a notion to do something a little bit strange? Off the cuff, an impulse. I remember, oh, I think Alex and I were going out maybe for a year, year and a half, and we decided one Thursday evening, let's drive to every county in the country this weekend. 
with zero planning, zero purpose, really. <laughs> and it was good fun. It was absolutely good fun. What possessed Ronan O'Healy to get in his car and drive to every Supermax Plaza in the country on the Tour de Cheeseburger? Ronan, good morning. Oh, you know, what's the crack? Are you a professional <laughs> food reviewer or was this maybe a little unusual? Uh, I wouldn't call myself professional, like, but um, I don't know. I do it for the love of like, you know. Um, but you're an engineer by background. So I, I am, yeah, yeah. I'm looking here at how you've rated the cheeseburgers and it's, it's very engineer-like. You've different headings and different scores and a, a cumulative total. So how many outlets did you visit? Uh, so there was eight in total. Um, we started, well, I started off, I say we, but it was, it was a solo trip. Uh, started off at nine o'clock in Rat Mines and then from there headed to Kinnegad. That was the first. And uh, yeah, no, Krakenburger there. I got an eight point an eight point four out of ten. It's a tough one when it, when it's the uh, the first burger of the day, like because it that that's the that's the marker you you have to you have to go at. Indeed, but, uh, yeah, that sets the bar, and they all have to try and yeah. exceed it thereafter. And what were the various yeah. headings? What was the criteria? Right, so I, I broke it down into ten ten categories. Uh, five were kind of plaza based, and then five were burger based. So because I was I was looking for the whole experience here, now, Will. It wasn't just the burger. You have to take in everything into consideration here. So the first five, we looked at the staff, the the atmosphere in the place, the cleanliness, um, the speed of the service, and also the extras. Like the extras, did they push something else on me? Like did they offer me a meal? Because you know it's, it's a business. Pat McDonough mm. is running a business here, so it's not it's not a game. Like he, his staff should be pushing pushing the boundaries. Okay, so you so were giving it, it, credit if there was an upsell. Absolutely, yeah. So the more the more that was pushed on me, the, the higher the marks. If they didn't offer me anything, they got a zero. Yeah, and in fairness, I see in Kinnegad, you've a full 10 points for extras there. So they were doing Absolutely. their job. Yeah, no, they were fair play. I think it was Victoria was, was the girl that served me. Uh, she was on the ball. Like, she, must, she must have got wind of it. Because, um, <laughs> yeah, she, was, she, she, definitely, she definitely knew what knew, 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 knew to ask me. And then what were the headings for the burger itself? Right, so then the burger then, we rated... The bun, the meat, uh, the onions, the sauce, and the cheese—all, um, all very important. Like the bun, you can get a bu- you can get a bun sometimes, and you never know it's, it's kind of flaky. You know, I, I call that the flaky Jones. You know, it's not mm-hmm. it's not fresh. It's a, it's a bit dry, a bit stale. So that's what I'm I'm looking for: fresh, a bit of a bounce off it, and but yeah, the toast is perfection. Then the meat, what we're looking for here is it has to be an absolute juicer. You know, the juicier, the better. You don't want it flat, you don't want it dead, you don't want it tired, you know. It can't be sitting around all day. And then the onions are kind of easy, the sauce is kind of easy, and then the cheese. You see, if, if you get it, and the cheese isn't melted, it's, 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 not, it's not really great. You know what, you just slap it on. Yeah, yeah no, you, you want it to melt and you almost want it, you want to make love to the burger. Outside, yeah. So... Kinnegad, it was a very solid showing. The only weaker mark was on speed. You gave them a six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that probably comes down to first thing in the morning, you know. Um, okay, yeah, we'll make an allowance for that. So, yeah. full, you know, nearly full marks for Kinnegad. Well done. Next yeah. on the list. Portlaoise. Now, Portlaoise didn't fare as well. It didn't. And I was told great things about Portlaoise. A friend of mine now... Um, he could be listening here, Neil Harney. He's been raving about Port 
leash since it's opened. He's going on saying it is the best chicken tenders, it is the best this, the best that. So I went down, it was my first time there, and uh, I was expecting big things. But my initial interaction with the staff, you know, a bit frosty, a bit cold, weren't too welcoming. So I was like, hmm, not great. Not a great start, like. Um, but then I moved on. The burger was good, but the speed, my God. I, I, I'd say it could have been, it was 12 to 15 minutes I was waiting for. And for that, for a cheeseburger, it's just simply not good enough. It's fast food. Not slow food, you know, it has to be pushed out, push it out. Right. Something to learn there in, in Port Leash. Uh, yeah, yeah. Then you headed down the motorway. Yeah, see, then I made back to the route. So I was meant to go to... I was meant to go across the Brack, but I went down to Tipperary Town. And I'll just give a shout-out to Tipperary Town, <laughs> the manager there, um, Patrick, very nice man. Um, but then I, so then I went back to Brack then, and... Brack, Brack blew me out of the water like absolutely incredible serious yeah I'm seeing there, like, tens and tens and nines yeah. here so yeah nearly yeah. nearly a perfect score a 9.4 in the end that's it yeah no they really uh, you know you know when you have the first bite you know you're you're like hmm, we're on to something here like it's going to be a good one and that was that was the say that was the general my general feeling throughout the whole experience of the burger it was just every bite kind of just got better and better and better yeah, so but you I, also I give full marks to the staff as well. They made a great impression. Yes, Thomas, Thomas, the manager there, he came down. We had a good chat, and that's that's the thing, you know, Will. Like Supermax, it's it's about the staff. You know, you go into a McDonald's and you what you interact with one of those electronic machines on the wall. Like, what's the point in that? You know, Supermax, you chat to the people, you get to know them, and they give your food the way it should be. So the Barack Obama Plaza nearly tops the list, but not quite. You went to a number of other locations, Mallow, Charlestown, Tume, but Galway gets the best score. Kane Fall. Ah, very easy, you know. Galway, the Galway Plaza, anyone who hasn't been there, if they're not doing anything at the weekend, they need to get down there. Everything about the Galway Plaza, but especially the burgers. So I was, and in fairness, I better say this now, it's a lot easier. Well, it's not a lot easier, but the fact that they were last, they had it in their advantage because they could plan, they could prepare, they could get ready. But <laughs> Why did that, you signal in advance that you were coming? Did you let them know? Well, no, see, everyone was, full, I, it was all live on on social media. I was, I was, I was, uh, Ah, well, that's an unfair day. advantage, all right, over the poor crew well, in Port Leash. Not really, because the night before I set up my, the route, so the boys in Port Leash knew that I'd be there at a certain time. So like if they were on their ball, they would have been checking and they would have been they would have been uh, they would have been ready. So no, they like there's they they knew I was coming. But God of Plaza anyway. When I walked in, they were there, the posters out ready. They really made they really made the effort for the advisor when he came in, like so and then the burger. I think your man the the man who made the burger was Keen. So a shout out to Keen. He's the king of burgers in Ireland right now. The king of burgers. Um, <laughs> he just made an absolute best burger of my life. Hands down, best burger of my life. And Pat McDonough was in there as well. We had a chat. Chat about life, chat about burgers. And yeah, just an overall great day. Might do it again this Saturday. Did he give you commission? Because you've given uh, him some wonderful publicity. I, 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 don't, I don't talk finance now. I do it for the love, not the money. But, uh, you, no, you, Pat, you do it for a free burger, I bet you. I will I do for free burger, right? But no, pack the gent, and uh, yeah, no, look, we'll uh, we might have a few things down the down the line as well. Ronan, nice talking with you. Thanks for taking the Good call. Stuff, will. That's um, Ronan O'Healy.
who is a mechanical design engineer who got an impulse and decided, yep, I'd fancy a burger, and then another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. The best burger, he says, is Galway. Do you disagree? Good morning. Still to talk about today why Michael O'Leary won't be leaving his entire fortune to his children. Also a huge ruling from the European Court of Justice in favour of Graeme Dwyer, who questioned the legality of Gore using his phone traffic and location data in building a case against him. And a rare condition, inclusion body meiosis. That's a tongue twister. And a family in Eden Derry are coming to terms with this. You'll hear more about it at half eleven. Now, on the subject of health, almost 20 years after the local health boards were abolished, government ministers will today discuss a plan to establish six regional health areas. But the HSE will also remain, apparently, in a leaner version. So what's the point of doing all this? Is it just administrative mumbo-jumbo or will it actually benefit you as a patient? Well, Paul Cullen is health editor with the Irish Times. Paul, good morning. Morning, Will. What's the thinking here? Well, at the, at the moment, uh, we have a system whereby hospital services are grouped into a number of um, hospital groups around the country. And yet services in the community, uh, which are delivered to organisations called community healthcare organisations, uh, are geographically different from those hospital groups. So if, for example, you're leaving hospital and you need to have care in the community, you may be dealing with one hospital and one hospital group, and then you ha- your care transfers to a different ho- uh, healthcare organisation with all the extra bureaucracy and delays that that involves. So it just wasn't working very well. This system was set up by uh, the former Health Minister, James Riley of Fine Gael, uh, a number of years ago. And um, I don't know why anyone ever agreed to it in the first place, but uh, it doesn't make sense. I think the second thing then was that there was a perception that um, since it was founded that the HSC had become overly bureaucratic and centralised and there was a need to return more power to regional areas. Now, that that belief uh, was very apparent in, in the thinking that went into Slauncher Care, uh, which is, for which um, the creation of regional health bodies is a central part. However, I would say that we have had the pandemic since then. One thing the pandemic showed was the usefulness of centralised nationwide health bodies because um, obviously things had to be introduced and changed very quickly across the country and it was useful to have a central body doing that rather than individual areas. For example, if you take the example of, say, Germany, uh, where they have different uh, states within within that country, there's been huge problems throughout the pandemic uh, in that country where different states were doing different things and became very confusing. Uh, and eventually, centralised government had to step in and and uh, lay down the law and ensure that certain important things were being done everywhere at the same time. Mm. So the thinking, you're right, the thinking has changed and it's possibly changed back a little bit now. So, But uh, uh, after some delay, because these things were promised in 2019, just before the pandemic, um, after some delay, the government is getting around to uh, announcing the implementation of these six bodies. Well, to build on the point you made about the benefits of some centralisation, so for instance, if you're purchasing a large amount of PPE for an entire country, you get economies exactly. of scale, whereas if you're doing yeah. it just for a small region, less so. So what 
centralised elements will be retained and what can be decided on local level then? Yeah, that's that's the $64,000 question uh, and that's what the detail that we await. Um, it is clear that if you're going to set up regional bodies, they have to have their own budget um, and they also have to be allocated resources from the central pot in a fair way that relates to their, for example, to their population and to their health needs. Um, so uh, you may end up with some uh, areas having, you know, one maybe one big hospital in it and other ones would have several big hospitals in it. So uh, there's a lot of um, balancing that will have to go on there. But beyond that, we don't know yet. Uh, and then the other issue would be what element of democracy is in it. They'll have to have boards. Um, and then who will sit on those boards? Um, will those boards be small enough to be able to operate effectively and not um, large, sprawling boards that we had before in the health boards? And then, obviously, the political dimension as well. This, you know, Would there be elected representatives on those boards? And then you would be back to the, the situation with the old health boards, mm. which were widely criticised at the time. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine the logic as well of, of some of these areas that have been picked. So Longford, Westmeath, Offaly, Leash, Kildare, parts of Dublin and Wicklow, that will be area B. How were the borders drawn? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the borders are, are going to be um, as they were proposed in 2019. Um, I think there's probably no perfect way to slice and dice the country. Uh, that, that's going to make everybody happy. Um, certainly, I'm just looking at Dublin, for example, I can see the area I live in is going to be, in South Dublin, it's going to be joined up with um, Wicklow and places further south, while North Dublin will be somewhere else and West Dublin would be somewhere else. So, uh, you know, there would be some people who feel that maybe all of Dublin should be in the one group, um, or maybe not. Uh, but anyway, I think the feeling is that anything would be better than the current situation we, we have. We ended up with First of all, the HSC um, was created and absorbed all of the bureaucracy that existed in the local health boards. Um, and, and that's still an issue. It's still an issue. Too much bureaucracy in the HSC, too much uh, control and command structure in, in Dublin. Uh, and certainly that has to be dealt with. And then somehow or other in a sort of a strangulated form, uh, reform process, we ended up with these hospital groups, each of whom has CEOs, boards, um, uh, staff and so on, and no, no outward-facing existence for the public. Really, nobody knows anything very much about them. Um, but there are another layer of bureaucracy that's been introduced. So, um, so certainly any any process of change that that slims down these structures would be welcome. Of course, it, but there's it theory and practice, though, said, Paul, isn't there? Because many of these people will have guaranteed contracts. They'll have yeah. uh, public service contracts and therefore yeah. they'll be redistributed as opposed to slimmed down, so to speak. Yeah, that's, well, that's what happened before. Um, and it, ha- it has been said since that what should have happened when the HSC was created was that there should have been a proper redundancy scheme offered. Uh, and... Um, and a targeted one at that, so that the right staff were kept and other staff were let go. But that didn't happen. But you're right, you're right. Um, there's going to be a lot to play for over, over the next while over, over these issues. Now, you have to ask whether this is actually going to happen. As I said, they've moved very slowly on this. It's taken three years since it was first promised. Um, there is clear lack of appetite for slowing to care within government and within the Department of Health. Um, there is... Uh, you know, sort of 
no clear formula for dealing with the major problems of overcrowding and access to emergency departments that the health service faces on a daily basis. So, and, and COVID keeps coming back and, 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 and affecting uh, services and hospitals and, and, and other organisations are very quick to cancel non-urgent work when COVID waves occur, as has happened in the last few weeks. So uh, you have to ask, you know, is this real? Is this really going to happen? Um, it seems likely that the government will be around long enough to introduce it if they want, if the appetite is there. But um, it's very hard to read what's happening in, in the department and with the minister at the moment. Uh, whether, you know, as you know, all parties have signed up to Sloan to Care, which is supposed to be the big plan for the future of health. It's now five years into a 10 year plan. And, you know, the money is now there, but many of the major reforms have yet to happen. Final message from Emily. She's wondering, is this just political cover so that if policy change is ineffective, local areas can be blamed, local representatives, instead of national government? Yeah, well, it's certainly true uh, of the HSE at the moment that it suits a lot of people in the political system and in the Department of Health to blame the HSE where things go wrong. Um, So uh, I think there will always be scapegoats, yes. And um, it's possible that could be the case. On the other hand, you have to say... Um, you know, when I talk about overcrowding, um, that's occurring in maybe half of the hospitals in the country, um, and much less so in other ha- hospitals. So, mm. you know, if communities care about their local facilities, they will, and they have power to to affect change in local areas. Um, so, you could see um, individual hospitals um, improve their performance. You know, which has happened in some parts of the country the last few years, but by and large, the same problem hospitals ten years ago, five years ago are still problem hospitals today. So something has to change in, 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 in the way that they're managed. Paul, grateful for your time. Thanks for taking the call. Thank you. Paul Cullen is health editor with the Irish Times. So Cabinet meets today. Ministers will thrash out these ideas for six regional areas of which the Midlands, Longford, Westmeath, Offaly and Leash will be paired with Kildare, parts of Dublin and Wicklow in what will be known as Area B, if the plan goes ahead, that is. And as many listeners have suggested, it's just a changing of the signs. It's going to be an expensive branding exercise. Will it actually amount to any change in patient care? Time will tell. If you're at home and you are cleaning or intending to clean this morning, what song would you most like to hear while you do it? Because there's been a new survey revealing the most popular cleaning song of all time. I'll tell you what it is after these. Well, if there's anything you're not going to agree with, it's music. Because music is so personal and so subjective. And last week there was the big survey about the greatest guitar riffs of all time. And boy, did we disagree. Anyway, the next survey on the list asks, what is the best cleaning song? So if you're there with the Hoover, if you're there mopping, if you're there scrubbing the counter, what soundtrack do you most prefer? At number three, Uptown Funk, Bruno Mars. At number two, Living on a Prayer, Bon Jovi. And at number one, Queen and I Want to Break Free. Would you agree with that choice? Is there one that they should have had on the list that isn't mentioned? 083 30 10 103 on text and WhatsApp. And I'll try to get your favourite on before the end of the programme.
Queens, I want to break free, topping the list of the best cleaning songs of all time. Well, Midlands 103's Claire Ann Nolan has been asking people on the street if they agree. Or what do they listen to instead? See, I love cleaning. That's my kind of therapy, if you know what I mean. That's my treatment for myself. I'd nearly, I'd nearly dirty the house just to, to clean it. I like anything from Foo Fighters. Rockier the better. My friend owns a fallet, a car fallet place, and whenever I'm not doing anything, I go to his place and I go, give me just a dirty car, please. Anything by the Spice Girls. I hate doing all of the cleaning, so I have a cleaner, but I'll do the washing up. And it's not my favourite. Uh, the cleaners do three hours a week. I don't listen to music to tell you that it does X, Y or Z to me. It's just uh, listening to the radio. I suppose I get a satisfaction out of maybe doing a bit of DIY, like a bit of uh, painting. Really embarrassing, but probably like techno or something like that, because at least then I feel like a little bit more motivated to do it. I feel like better about myself. I'm like, okay, at least that's done now. But then I think about like, this is only going to last for like 10 minutes and it's going to be a wreck again. I hate doing the dishes so much. Well, I like a bit of Brian Adams, uh, Summer 69, all that type of thing. But generally when I'm cleaning, I listen to Midland. 103. I just love all the 80s hits, being honest with you, 80s, 90s. I hate ironing. I just do not like ironing. <laughs> I only iron as hard as I go along. Great exercise until the kids come in and just mess it all up again. Clean the kitchen or something like that. I live on my own and that sort of thing. And <laughs> wetting floors and that sort of thing. Usually Monday, that'd be the day off. Though. I depend if anyone coming in around like that, maybe an hour, an hour and a half. I don't mind at all. Like, uh, I like the 80s, 90s. Yeah, my hated one, hoovering or ironing. But uh, in general, everything else is okay. Friday is my usual day, but I do a bit every day, really, you know. Ironing. I hate ironing. Oh, no, I just do them when I have to, when I can't get over it. I love ironing. You just sit back and you watch it being done. It's great fun. Um, if you love 80s, by the way, the Column Quinn BMW 80s hour, 6 o'clock every evening here on Midlands 103 on Drive Time with Roy Jennings. And also on Fridays, it's the 90s mixtape where he brings you back to one of the more underappreciated decades, I think, musically. Next, Health Matters. So, Liam Butler from Butler's Pharmacy will be taking you through some questions and answers, some already on the list from listeners. Get your query into me on 083 30 10 103, text or WhatsApp, and we'll deal with it as quickly as we can between now and 11. Wouldn't it be nice to save money? Well, one of the ways in which you spend money is in your taxes. And do you claim back everything from the revenue commissioners to which you are entitled. Well, let's kick off Health Matters. Health Matters on Midlands 183 in association with Haven Pharmacy Butler's Burr. For confidential pharmacy advice, let Lean Butler, third generation of the family and his staff, look after you and your family. Find Haven Pharmacy Butler's Burr on social media. Expert care made personal. Midlands 103. Indeed, well, Liam Butler is our guest today. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Will. How are you? It's a kind of a grimy day here in Burr. It's not that nice, windy and cold and a bit wet. Yeah, it's changed a lot in the space of a week, hasn't it? It has, it has. It's not pleasant today, but anyway, we've got to keep going. It won't last. The good weather shall return. Let's stay positive. And on a positive note, 
Is it true that medical expenses are the largest unclaimed expense from revenue? It certainly is. It certainly is. And it, it, it's... It beggars belief in many ways, Will. I mean, we advertise it locally here in Burr in our pharmacy. We try and encourage as many of our patients who have spent considerable amounts of money during the year. But a lot of people just do not bother to collect the, the money that's due to them. And it's not just on prescribed medicines that we've been given them receipts for here. It's also for doctor's bills, physios, some dental treatments, x-rays, MRIs, things like that. Uh, your listeners would probably be not that surprised to hear that the average family in Ireland spends about 1,250 to 1,500 euros a year on those type of expenses. Um, so it's about 110 to 120 euros a month or thereabouts. Um, it's quite easy to do it. You know, when you add up all those things, it's quite easy to do it. But they don't claim it back. And it's very easy to claim it back. Revenue are very, very good at paying it back, but they cannot pay it back unless people actually make a claim for it. Um, so certainly I would encourage any of your listeners listening in today who has not claimed health expenses for the last four years, you can go back four years. So you can do 21, 20, 19 and 18 to claim back their four, whatever is due to them. The typical family, as I said, is spending maybe 1,250 euros a year. The first 250 euros of that will you cannot claim against. So that is gone. But you can claim on the balance, which in that case would be 1,000 euros at your marginal tax rate. So you're really talking about a really good night away or a partial weekend away. That's what you're due back for four years if you haven't done it. So you're talking about 1,000 euros there. Yeah, now the only consideration, make sure you've got the receipts and keep the receipts because they can check up even after the four years. I think they can look back seven years. That's correct. That's correct. And and they do check. I mean, obviously, if people are going to, you know, over-exaggerate claims, uh, that's not going to work either. I certainly would encourage anybody to do that. Um, your pharmacy can help. They can, you know, if, if people are getting regular monthly medicines, you've got 12 bits of paper then. But it's much easier just to get one report at the end of the year. Uh, and we print out a lot of those. But I really encourage people to do it because it's, it's money that is yours, that's due to you. And the revenue pay it very very quickly normally uh, I, I do mine in maybe february of the year so i would do it say february 22 for claiming for 21 and i'd get a check back in march um, so it's it's very very quick it's a simple process too you can do it online or you can send it in a paper form to your local revenue office good question from Teresa here can you claim vhi invoices against your taxes no no, you can't. No, you definitely can't, unfortunately. Um, a lot of this, I suppose there's so many different BHI plans from very, very basic ones up to elaborate ones. Um, but to the best of my knowledge, you cannot claim those um, because people, you, you cannot make a double claim, I suppose, Will. So if you have a BHI plan that gives you a refund after you've had treatment or after you've used a specialist or, or had prescribed medicines or a consultation, whatever it is, you're getting money back on that. Yeah. And you then cannot make a double claim to revenue for that. Although I think you can get tax relief on your insurance premium. So when yes, you, you pay your insurance for the year, you can claim a portion of that back, but not individual yeah. expenses under it. Exactly, exactly. And it's it's funny, all this money, I, mean, I suppose people are talking now about tightening belts and cost of inflation. And it's really sad that people just aren't bothered to go and claim this money. You know, it's, it's very, very simple to do and it's quite easy. Text from Mary and Leash. 
Four years ago, we got a cheque back from revenue for seven euro for our health expenses. Really, it wasn't worth it. Well, I think if you've got maybe a small amount one year, do it over a couple of years. It'll eventually add up. But generally speaking, you are looking at a couple of hundred quid back. And it is easy to do on the My Account section of the revenue website too. You don't need any of these fancy companies charging you a commission on whatever uh, you get back. Another listener asks about the drug payment scheme and why the threshold has been reduced not once but twice recently. Uh, Quick explainer, drug payment scheme. Yeah, the drug payment scheme is a brilliant scheme for anybody who doesn't have medical card eligibility. So if you don't have a medical card, you should be in the drug payment scheme. And what it does is it caps your family's medical bill at 80 euros per month. So if you come into my pharmacy today and you're getting very expensive medicine, I'm gonna say over 200 euros, you pay me 80 euros and I bill the HSE for 120 and they pay me. And that's how it works. Um, But since Christmas, I think on the 1st of January, uh, the threshold dropped to 114 euros and then it dropped to 100 and then it dropped to 80. So the government have made a really, really strong effort, I suppose, because of the, the financial situation we're in at the moment. People really are struggling to pay bills to reduce the threshold. Our pharmacy union have been complaining for years and years that our threshold was far too high. And historically, Ireland would have been a very expensive place for medicines. I can remember reading reports maybe 10, 15 years ago, Will, uh, and we would have spoken about this on air at different times. Ireland was a really expensive place for medicines. And there was justification then for the threshold to be high. Now Ireland is in the bottom one third of cost price for medicines. So the threshold should be dropping down. And actual fact, I, I think it probably should drop further. And I know lots of representative bodies are lobbying the government to have it drop to 60 or 65 or 70 euros because people do need money in their pocket. Next, um, is there any rationale for maintaining the levy on GMS prescription items? We're getting into real finances today, but uh, uh, listeners, again, watching the the cents and the euros and where they're going. So the levy on a GMS prescription, is that a fixed amount? It's a fixed amount depending on your age. So if you have a medical card and you're under 70, you currently pay €1.50 per item. If you're over 70, you pay €1 per item. Now, it is capped. Um, so for people who are paying 150, they get the first, sorry, they get everything over 10 items free. So they pay up to 15 euros. And if their 11th item or 12th item is free and so on. And it's the same for people who are over 70. They pay for the first 10 items, which is up to 10 euros. But it's a really good question. The rationale for this GM levy, GMS levy is actually poor. And the thinking behind it is very poor. It was introduced at a time when the prescribing and dispensing of items was taking off probably about 9, 10, 11 years ago, that kind of time. But that was largely down to demographics. We had an older population, we had an aging population, and the government were really keen to put the handbrake on prescribing and dispensing. But it hasn't worked. It really hasn't worked. And every other country in Europe that has introduced the levy for that reason has done an about turn and taken it away. Uh, And I think certainly this year it's a real chance for the government to have a look at this because the prescribing and dispensing of items is still quite strong and it's related to age and nothing else will to be honest with you we are an older population in ireland and introducing the levy has made no impact on that and all it's doing is costing some people a little bit of misery in terms of cost 
So I'm in favour of the levy being abolished. And uh, I think if any of your listeners are chatting to local politicians, they should raise that with them because it is going to be a political decision. 083 30 10 103 on text and on WhatsApp. So some medical queries then as opposed to financial ones. The nasal drip that is clogging up my throat when I'm asleep at night and also produces a frog in the throat in the morning has proven impossible to get rid of. How would Liam deal with it? Yeah, it's a very difficult one. Um, I always try and start with the simplest non-invasive treatment. What I really recommend for that, and it's a little bit awkward to use, but it's very successful, is one of the saline nasal sprays or a product called Nealmed, which is really like an irrigation system for the sinus cavities. And I think if, if one or both of those are used regularly, over the space of a couple of days, you really see an immediate impact. A lot of the drip can be caused by something like a loose hair follicle or a little bit of mucus or a little bit of dust or debris, and it causes this drip. So if we can flush out, I suppose it's a bit like using a drain cleaner if you've got drains blocked at home. If we can flush out any of these irritants, it really does reduce the drip. Both of those, the ones I've just mentioned, uh, Nealmed and also Sterimar, all they have in it is salt salt and water so it's like jumping up going over the salt hill and jumping into the sea um they're very safe to use but incredibly effective i'd be disappointed if that listener doesn't get strong relief quickly using that next any cure for small sores on the scalp this is from tommy who says he has tried nizerol shampoo but it hasn't made a difference yeah, Nizerol is a super product, but it's an antifungal treatment. Um, and we get a lot of fungal infections on our scalp and in our hair. Uh, and dandruff is, is one of those. But I, I wouldn't be surprised that Nizerol hasn't worked. I think he's better off using something else. Um, I recommend a product called Capasal. It's about seven euros. It is a shampoo. And what is, what's in it is a very old-fashioned acid that just just very gently burns away at these little irritated areas. Now, when I say burn away, some of your listeners are probably going, oh my God, that's going to hurt you. That's going to be sore. It's it's not sore. It doesn't hurt at all. The only thing about it is that when you use it, you must keep it in the hair for kind of four to five minutes. So it can be awkward if you're showering. So it's all about the contact time with the skin. And I think if that listener, Tommy, uses Capasal twice or three times a week, maybe for a week, and then cut it down to maybe just once or twice a week, You'll get really, really immediate relief. Um, the Capasal product is probably the best on the market in Ireland for reducing red, irritated, sensitive areas in the scalp. Uh, I use it myself. I recommend it all the time. Now, 083 30 10 103 on text and WhatsApp. is coming up on 12 minutes to 11, so still time to pick the brain of Liam Butler from Haven Pharmacy Butler's in Burr. And after which we will be hearing about a major decision by the European Court of Justice ruling in favour of Graham Dwyer and how the Gorthy used his personal phone data in making a prosecution against him. This has implications, not just for Mr Dwyer, but for various others who are behind bars. Another financial query, Liam, regarding the medical card, can you receive a heart monitor under your medical card, do you know? No, no, you can't, you can't. Um, 
We have them for sale in the pharmacy here. If we were allowed to give them to medical care patients, we would, but we're certainly not allowed. I think medical care patients are entitled to two visits a year to their GP to have their blood pressure checked and have their heart rate monitored. Um, but I am 99.9% .9 sure there's no eligibility for them on the medical card. Right. And if you're to buy it privately, what's the typical price of a heart monitor? Yeah, I would urge a little bit of caution around this. I mean, that you can buy cheaper ones out there. You can get them from kind of 15 to 20 euros. Um, a lot of the supermarkets sell them. Just make sure you, when you're buying one that you're buying one with the CE standard. Um, typically, ones that we would sell here in the pharmacy are from Amron and Braun. They tend to be at the dear end, kind of 50 odd euros. But I've nothing against the, the cheaper ones, but just make sure they are they do have the CE mark on them and that it's a brand that they can recognise. Now, the next query relates to rosacea. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And it's a condition that will need an explainer, I think. Rosacea? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very common treatment. Um, acne is a form of rosacea. So people generally are very, very common with, with acne, uh, particularly teenagers, uh, none of whom should be listening in at the moment. Of course, they're in school, but their parents might be listening in. Uh, rosacea really just means red, irritated, sensitive and possibly sore skin. Um, you see it commonly in teenagers, but you also see it in older people as well, particularly fellas who are working or girls who are working outside, maybe on farms and buildings, like things like that. They tend to get a lot of uh, wind burn and soreness coming from the elements so it, it's a really difficult thing to treat it can be very sore of course it can be very embarrassing as well and people are, are kind of sensitive to been out in public with it um, I think the, the most important treatments for it really are emollients or moisturizers um, I would be very very poor at using a moisturizer myself I never do to be honest with you but as I'm getting older it's becoming more and more important I see myself, my skin starting to dry out. And if I didn't do it at all, you will find that it will develop into skin issues and possibly, you know, in the longer term, rosacea. So I would encourage that listener to use a moisturizer frequently. And by frequently, I mean every two, two hours. We often see treatment failure uh, with people with dry skin conditions and irritated skin and sensitive skin. And probably the worst thing that they do is that they just don't treat their skin with the respect it needs and use a moisturizer often enough so if that listener has a really simple moisturizer like aqueous cream or silcox base or e45 avino those kind of products use it regularly and it should take the redness and the irritation out of the skin if it doesn't maybe just pop into your local pharmacy and chat to the pharmacist and get some advice um, but it should be a simple enough thing to treat unless it's the acne form and that is difficult to treat and it's a hormonal response um, and I, I would chat to teenagers every week about this and they're really disappointed when you tell them that there is no quick fire quick fix to this and there really isn't um, and they're just at that stage where hormones are raging they're maturing they're getting interested in, in, in other younger people and they're just very concerned about their appearance but it's it's dreadful to have to tell them it's going to be a long haul Next, warts under the nails of your hand. This is very unpleasant. It comes from Con, who says his doctor has examined it 
and he believes a, a surgical answer is needed, but he's three years waiting. He's wondering what might give him some relief in the meantime. Have you ever come across this before, Liam? I have, I have, just once actually. Um, and surgery, so this, this, this person's GP is completely on the ball. Surgery is the only option. Um, you cannot use the free sprays that GPs would have and once that we sell, they're a little bit weaker on the nail. Um, and you cannot use the acid preparations that we sell. So, so warts really are just like an onion. Um, there's layers and layers of skin. So you want to freeze that skin or burn the skin away. But because it's under the nail and the nail bed is very, it's weak in terms of its protection, you'll do considerable damage. So surgery is the only intervention. Um, it's terrible pity he's waiting three years. I mean, I think COVID ha- has upset a lot of the waiting lists. And this would be considered a non-essential treatment or a non-urgent tr- treatment, but it's obviously causing distress to your listener. Um, but I don't have an answer to that just because of the location of the wart. When it's in under the nail, the only thing that's going to work is, is surgical intervention. 083 30 10 103 on text and on WhatsApp. The next query is about migraine in a 47-year-old lady I suppose any number of possibilities as to what could be causing it. What's your initial reaction and how would you deal with it? Yeah, it's, uh, I've never suffered with migraines, but I have great sympathy for people who do. Migraines, generally, there is a cause for them. And I think if people are getting, you know, more than one or two a month, they should be keeping a little diary and a record and trying to copy, write down, sorry, what they're eating, drinking, how their sleep was, whether they were under a bit more stress than normal. Um, it used to be years ago that people got a lot of migraines from dairy products, not so much anymore. I think a lot of the causes now at the moment are down to just busyness and stress. Um, the super migraine treatments that you can get without going to your GP, the most important one and the one that you use regularly is one called Somatriptan. Uh, you can get a little packet of those. They are expensive. They're about 10 or 11 euros, I think, Will. Um, but they really work if you can get it in a timely fashion. So a timely fashion would be within two hours of the onset. And this is where we would see a lot of patients falling down, particularly ones who are maybe not used to migraines. It's hard to differentiate between it and a headache. But generally with the migraine, the pain is more severe. The onset is more rapid. There are other little issues going on as well, like little distortions of light and little distortions of sight. It's the first migraine that it really is different or hangover, things like that. It's completely different. With some tryptin would really pay rich dividends. Now, next. Warts under the toenails. Okay, so this is becoming not just an isolated case on, uh, on that previous caller. I think they were talking about their fingernails. Uh, toenails. Is, is there a preventative action here? Is there something causing this that we can correct? People are prone to warts and it's caused by a virus. So it's just one of those things. It's nothing that they've done wrong. You asked me on the previous question, had I come across this? And the the only place I have come across it is on toenails. I haven't seen it on fingernails, to be honest. Um, But my advice is really exactly the same. Um, If it's actually in under the toenail, you just cannot get at it with a free sprayer with the acid. And you've got to be very careful. So it will need a local, local intervention or local surgery. Um, it's not invasive, you know, normally it's just a local anaesthetic and it'd probably take half an hour to an hour and that would be out again quite quickly, but it's the only thing that's going to work. Um, but certainly just to, I suppose, allay any fears your listener might have, it's nothing they've done wrong. It's just one of those things. 
Liam, we've gone over time. Uh, appreciate you making time for us today. We'll chat again very soon. Liam Butler from Butler's Pharmacy in Burr. Good morning. Now, still on the agenda today. A uh, rare condition. I haven't heard of it. I'm not sure if you have. Inclusion body myosostis. And it affects mobility in the arms and legs, so much so that a relatively young person is residing in a nursing home and cannot get back to their own home unless you are able to help them. Why isn't the state stepping in? Anyway, that conversation at half past 11. This ruling from the European Court of Justice this morning could have implications for many cases and not just that of Graeme Dwyer. Let's get up to date from our court's correspondent, Frank Graney, who was monitoring proceedings at the European Court of Justice. Frank, good morning. Good morning, Will. Remind us, and most people will be familiar, but just give us an outline of the Graeme Dwyer case and how the prosecution was made against him using phone data. Well, Graeme Dwyer was handed and is serving a life sentence back in 2015 for the murder of Elaine O'Hara three years beforehand. Elaine O'Hara was a childcare worker, Graeme Dwyer himself, an architect originally from Cork, but was living in Dublin at the time. And the prosecution's case against him uh, during that high-profile trial was circumstantial. To this day, we don't know how Elaine O'Hara died. We don't have a definitive cause of death. Mobile phones relevant to the investigation were used in the prosecution of Graeme Dwyer. And more specifically, and more relevant, I suppose, to today's conversation, will um, metadata was used. Now, metadata is location data, it's call records, you know, uh, phone calls being made or received, um, what time, the duration of a call, those kind of details. And what they helped the prosecution do during the Graham Dwyer trial was they helped them build a narrative, albeit a circumstantial narrative, whereby they put it to the jurors that, you know, their claim was these phones are linked to Graeme Dwyer and Elaine O'Hara. So they could say through this cell site analysis, when a phone call is made, for example, when a text message is received or sent, it would ping off the nearest um, cell site, the nearest uh, uh, um, a cell site in a particular area where the phone is being used. So the prosecution was able to paint a picture that was put to the jurors. Now, what weight, if any, as the jurors put on that in their deliberations, I mean, it's not for us to know such as the sanctity of the jury room, but it was certainly, I think it is fair to say that it was relevant and crucial evidence uh, introduced by the prosecution. As I said, Graeme Dwyer was ultimately convicted uh, of the murder of Elaine O'Hara, but three years later, he brought a legal challenge to the High Court. Now, it's important to point out that this wasn't an appeal against his conviction. He hasn't made that yet. He will in due course, no doubt, and we'll get to that in a moment. But this is a challenge against the legislation that allowed that metadata to be retained by uh, service providers, mobile phone and internet providers. This was a piece of legislation that was introduced in 2011 on the back of a directive from Europe uh, back in 2006. That directive from Europe was in response to 9-11 and uh, to combat terrorism offences. Uh, This legislation was introduced in Ireland in 2011, but three years later it was declared invalid. It was declared to be in contravention of EU law. And Graeme Dwyer successfully argued before the High Court that if that was the case, then the data shouldn't have been retained in the first instance. And he argued and raised questions about the admissibility of the phone evidence used during his trial. He was successful at High Court level, 
the state then, I suppose, given the ramifications of the decision, the state appealed that to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court sought some clarity in a number of issues from Europe. We got, I suppose, a bit of an indication before the end of last year as to what way the court was going to rule. And that was confirmed this morning with the European Court of Justice delivering a ruling which will greatly assist uh, Graeme Dwyer in his attempt to have his conviction overturned because it did declare once and for all, if there was ever any doubt, it's been put to bed today because Europe has said that that piece of legislation uh, back in 2011 that allowed these service providers to retain this metadata that subsequently allowed Gardaí and other state agencies to access it without any ministerial or judicial review or approval, it declared that that is in contravention of EU law. Does this have implications for others apart from Graeme Dwyer, potentially? It does. Um, It it, it has lots of ramifications. Um, We've spoken a little bit about, I suppose, the consequences in relation to Graeme Dwyer's appeal. It's a good news for Graeme Dwyer, for sure, because it does strengthen his hand. It gives him a valuable ground of appeal now when when he eventually brings his appeal to at the Court of Appeal, he'd be able to argue that that evidence was or should have been inadmissible during the trial. Um, the wider ramifications are significant too, not just for Angarda Shia Khan and the way that they investigate serious crimes here, but for police forces right across Europe, because it means from now on, and we'll get to, I suppose, the retrospective element in a moment, but Gardaí now know, and police forces across Europe should now know once and for all that they can't access this metadata. Um, and, and this has huge ramifications for cases before the Special Criminal Court in particular. Cases where you have um, you know, career criminals um, who are forensically aware. You know, I've covered cases where this metadata, phone locations, cell site analysis, you know, call records, have proved crucial in securing prosecutions. Gardaí going forward won't now be able to rely on that evidence. And also this, I mentioned a moment ago, that this law was declared in contravention of EU law um, eight years ago. So this could have a retrospective effect too, whereby any cases that have come before the courts since 2014, well, a convicted criminal could argue that on the back of this decision, the evidence used in their case shouldn't have been allowed go to the jury or three judges of the special criminal court as the case may be Hmm. and just on process then would that trigger a retrial what would be the mechanism well i think it's important to point out that each of these appeals if they're brought and you'd imagine that there are lots of lawyers uh, waiting in the wings for this decision there is another step too so this will have to go back to the supreme court and i see the Minister for Justice Helen McEntee has been tweeting just to say that, you know, she has read the judgment and it will be now for the Supreme Court to consider. Because the Supreme Court was seeking clarity on these issues. It has now received that clarity. It will have to take some time to consider the state's appeal against that 2018 High Court judgment. But it will be bound by today's ruling. So I think, you know, it's fair to say that um, that's just a formality that the Supreme Court will now tow uh, the line. Um, and that will then trigger Graeme Dwyer's appeal and it could also have the effect of triggering other appeals but it's not a foregone conclusion and and it will be taken in a case-by-case basis and and it's also important to point out that yes Graeme Dwyer's hand has certainly been strengthened on the back of this this ruling 
Um, but the Court of Appeal will look at all of the grounds of appeal. It will be able to look at all of the other evidence and consider whether, OK, you know, maybe the phone evidence isn't on the table, but could a jury have safely convicted him on the basis of the evidence that was presented to them aside from that? And that's the exact same approach that it will take in relation to other cases if appeals are brought. Yes, this metadata has proven crucial in many prosecutions and in many trials that I've covered over the years, but it isn't always the sole and exclusive evidence presented to a jury. So I think people should be very mindful of that. Each case will be taken on its own merits. Brian in Leash quotes Charles Dickens from 200 years ago. He says the law is an ass. That may be his view and it may be the view of others that perhaps this was never what the GDPR data protection effort intended to achieve. So is, is there, and, uh, this is a non-fair question perhaps, is there likely to be a review or a conversation at least around whether the spirit of the regulations has been fulfilled here? I, I think the conversation should have been had a long time ago, to be honest. I mean, you know, this ruling that came today, you know, it's it's been a long time coming, but I think it's fair to say that it was a foregone conclusion a long time ago. You know, if you listen back to what I said a, um, a moment ago, I mean, the government would have been aware eight years ago, the government at the time would have been aware eight years ago in 2014, that this law, this significant piece of legislation was in contravention of EU law. You know, subsequent governments didn't do anything about it. Um, and it's taken for this, you know, in April of 2022, it's taken for, you know, a Supreme Court request to Europe to tell us what everybody already knew, that it was in contravention of EU law. In fact, I'd imagine the judges in Luxembourg were taken aback when this landed on their desk because it has been such a long time coming. I suppose one of the things that the Supreme Court wanted clarity on was whether or not their ruling, and they were expected, you know, I think all of the indicators were that they were going to rule in favour of the High Court. But before they did that, they wanted to know if their ruling would have a retrospective effect, which means that it will take effect from when the law was declared invalid. Again, that was 2014. That's certainly been cleared up uh, today because the court did rule uh, that our courts, national courts, courts in Ireland and other member states can't impose what they described as a temporal limitation on the effects of a declaration of invalidity of a national law that provides for such uh, retention. That's a lot of legal... I was about to say, well done on getting that out. Yeah, I, I, I struggle to get my own head around it. But basically what, what it means is that, you know, that law was declared invalid in 2014 and the European Court of Justice sees no reason as to why the law should only take effect from now. It should go back eight years ago because, you know, that directive that underpinned it from 2006 was declared null and void, uh, essentially. So I don't know, has it been a case of kicking the can down the road or just waiting for a challenge to come? But the challenge was always inevitably going to come and it took a very, very high profile case, you know, from a convicted criminal who has a very skilled barrister in Remy Farrell arguing his case uh, all the way to Europe. Today is the right decision. I mean, it's there in black and white. The ramifications of it are huge. You know, you, you could argue from the state's point of view, you know, that there is obviously an importance in protecting citizens, of protecting life, of investigating serious crimes. And they've now been dealt a huge blow in relation to that. Lots of competing rights here, though. You know, you have to consider the right of a person's, uh, you know, a person's right to privacy. 
Um, so that was clearly a delicate balancing act for all of the courts that have heard these legal issues, our own High Court in Dublin, the Supreme Court, and now the European Court of Justice would have had to consider all these. But I think it's fair to say at this point, the European Court of Justice said that a person's right to privacy trumps those needs of the state. And that, that directive back in 2006 was introduced to tackle terrorism uh, and, and terrorism offences. It wasn't intended to, you know, murder is obviously a very serious crime domestically, but it was never envisaged that, you know, there would be this widespread and indiscriminate retention of a person's data so that if at some point in the future, you know, Will or Frank Graney committed a crime, that the guards could delve into our phone records, you know, without any prior approval from a from a judge or an independent authority that a senior guard that could, you know, instruct their detectives to, to, to look into that. I don't think it was ever envisaged to be the case. I don't know if you've seen that Tom Cruise sci-fi movie, Will, Minority Report, mm, but indeed, yes. essentially what the state was trying to argue was that, you know, we don't live in a sci-fi world whereby, you know, you can you can anticipate when crimes are going to happen before they happen. And that's, I suppose, the plot of Minority that's Report. Indeed the pre Exactly, is that they had the technology to do that. Clearly, we, we don't have those uh, resources. So their argument was, you know, it's after the effect. It's trying to solve crimes. But, you know, as I say, they lost that's the that will no longer be available to them going forward. Frank, it's a complicated case, intricate detail. Thank you very much for giving us your update. No problem, Will. Frank Rainey, our courts correspondent. Now, you may be like Brian in Port Leash and utterly disagree 083 30 10 103 on text and WhatsApp. This is a conversation that's only just starting. Well, arguably, it should have been going on eight years ago. But what will be the fallout? What will be the changes called for in terms of the law? Uh, as I said, that conversation only getting underway now. It's a bit like Back to the Future on the programme this morning. Earlier, it was like the health boards were coming back. So we would have six regional health areas under a new plan being discussed by Cabinet today. Just basically turned the clock back 20 years, in other words. And now you may remember, if you're of a certain age, a time when you could bring old bottles to be returned and you'd get a a fee, a couple of pence or whatever it was at the time, in exchange for returning them. And now we're going to adopt a similar practice again. This time, it's as a pilot scheme in the town of Abbey Leaks, but this is informed by Eamon Ryan, the Minister's national policy. Colin O'Byrne is from the Return for Change campaign. Colin, good morning. Good morning, Will. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Describe what you're doing in Abbey Leaks and how the system will work. Okay. well, as you touched upon there at the beginning, this is a a kind of a back-to-the-future scenario insofar as we in Ireland will be getting our own deposit return scheme, most likely by the end of the year. So that essentially means that the in-scope materials is the language they use here. That really means that PET, plastic bottles and aluminium beverage cans, they're going to have a deposit placed on them at the point of sale in the shop. So when I go in to buy, say, a, a can of fizzy or, or a bottle of water or whatever, say I might pay €1.50 for the bottle, there could be a 15 or $0.20 cent deposit on top of that. So I use it, drink whatever I need to drink from it, bring it back empty to any retailer, and I will get that deposit back. So it's it's being used, It's uh, the scheme is being set up as an incentive to get people to get these really precious materials back into the system so that we can collect as much of them as possible for recycling. 
So just remind us, what are the materials that are eligible for the scheme? Okay, well, in Ireland, we're starting small, which I actually think works in our favour. So PET, plastic bottles, so they're your, your bottles of water or Coke or whatever else, as opposed to, say, um, fabric conditioner bottles and that kind of thing. So beverage bottles and beverage cans. So not tins of beans, but tins of, of Coke or Fizzy or whatever, that kind of thing. So those two materials, are, or sorry, containers, are what we'll be recycling, uh, collecting at the beginning. Now, there's nothing to say we can't expand the range of containers that the system will be able to take and even add elements of refill, which is something we at Voice, who's the, the parent organisation I work for, are really pushing hard for to the refill element. But if we can get this down, if we can get the recycling rates up, it's an excellent beginning, but we can look to improve and expand the, the scheme afterwards. Potentially expanded to encompass how many different items? I mean, pick a number, any number, really. It's a, it, containers, so any amount of containers, could be beverage containers, could be punnets, could be different things like that. It really depends. It's all about trying to have a, an excellent infrastructure in terms of recycling, but you know your three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. There's a reason that recycle is at the bottom. Yes, it's very good, and in fact, it's, it's far preferable to, you know, to littering, but it's not quite as good as refilling uh, or reusing. So that's something we can look at doing, like say with, with bottles. Mm. Rather than just single use and getting them out for recycling, which is grand, if we could use them over and over again, if, there was, if we could set up the infrastructure, they would take bottles back, clean them, and then they could be reused rather than recycled. Yeah, it's that the most efficient way of doing things, all right, accept it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So how much would the return be? Again, carrot and stick, if you want to do just behaviour, people will have to see it as in their interests. They will, and you're, you're right to, to, um, to focus in on that. There's a there's a kind of a sweet spot, right? You don't want to have the deposit so small that people just aren't really bothered bringing it back, say, like five cent. And you certainly don't want it to be so large as to, uh, to encourage a criminal element where people go, going, there's money to be made in this. So there is a sweet spot. Now, the department hasn't decided yet. There's two ways they could go. They could go for a fixed rate, which is to say that regardless of the volume of the container, like that was it 250 millilitres or three litres, you would have the same deposit or you have a variable rate, which would be make it rel- uh, relative to the volume. So a 250 millilitre bottle might be, say, 15 cent and a three litre bottle might be, say, 80 cent. Now, these haven't been, certainly they haven't been published yet, so we don't know which way the department's going, but those are the options that they can avail of. So let's imagine this is scaled up and the vision is fulfilled. It's in every supermarket a reverse spending machine. Where will the product go to be put back into circulation? Do we have the infrastructure, in other words? We have the infrastructure to a degree. Now, we have, there's a plant up in, in Monham, for example, called Shabra, and they do great, they have great uh, facilities up there for recycling. Um, again, these are the details that have been ironed out in the department at the moment. They're, I don't know whether these materials are going to be shipped around Ireland. Are they going to build a new plant somewhere in the Midlands? We can talk about I'm not exactly sure. But what I do know is the scheme pays for itself in a way, well, rather the producers pay for the scheme. So the producers, i.e. those companies who would introduce the materials, those containers into the market, they're the ones responsible for making sure that they collect the materials at the end because they own those materials. So the scheme is being uh, being paid for by three uh, streams. So the producers have to pay for the scheme uh, an input fee. They collect the materials at the end and then sell them, whether that's selling to uh, a market in Ireland or abroad, I'm not quite sure yet. 
and also then unredeemed deposits. So even in the best deposit return schemes around Europe, say Norway and Germany, they don't get to 100%. So there could be like 5% of all bottles and cans that don't get returned. And so those deposits, which don't go back to the consumer, will go back into the scheme again. So there really should be a, a net cost of zero to the state for the running of this scheme. We have some cynical listeners, <laughs> I'm glad to say. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> because the concern is that ultimately prices can often be passed to the end user. And if there's a saving for these manufacturers, because potentially they don't have to produce new bottles or new containers again and again and again, how do we protect the consumer to ensure the saving is passed on ultimately? Well, this has all been sort of done on the back of the single-use plastic directive from the EU. And so, amongst other things, you'll have seen, you know, um, for example, a change in, in cotton buds. They're no longer plastic and that kind of thing. So there was a, a list of single-use items, plastic forks, etc., that are a huge uh, cause of waste and marine waste. One of the elements of the single-use plastic directive is to get a separate collection rate for plastic bottles of over 90% by the end of this decade. And uh, and we're putting, we're having the aluminium cans in concert with that. So the thing is then, by the midway point of this decade and then toward the end, we're going to have to have uh, each plastic bottle, PET plastic bottle, will have to have at least 30% recycled content in it. So it sort of behooves the, the producers to collect this material because they're required to have recycled material in it. There are going to be safeguards. Again, this is all sort of being trashed out in the department at the moment, so I can't give you exact details because they, they just haven't been published yet. But there will be safeguards uh, I suppose trigger points within the the, the final body of, of text that will make sure that any costs are borne by the producers that there should that, that there won't be any costs borne by the the consumers or by the state. It's an extended produ- uh, producer responsibility scheme. So that basically means the producer pays, mm-hmm. the polluter pays rather. So you can think of that like uh, the we. Uh, scheme, for example, with electronic goods going back, that they're the producers paying for that scheme as well. So that's how this scheme is up and running. Will be up and running in Ireland and is running across Europe and, and plenty of other parts of the world. The costs are borne by the producers. So let's bring this back to Abbey Leaks. You'll be in the town yes. tomorrow. And what will your demonstration look like? So I have in my possession this rather wonderful trailer which has four reverse vending machines built into it. Now, reverse vending machine. It's essentially, you know, a vending machine. Now, you get your money, you put it in, you get your bottle out. A reverse vending machine does exactly what it says in the tin. You put your empty bottle in, you'll get your credit back out. Now, I won't be given any credit because I don't have the budget for it. But what I do have is the trailer with these reverse vending machines built into it. So I'll be outside of the Abbey Leeds Manor Hotel from about uh, six or half six, showing people with plastic bottles and cans, just putting them in, how to use this machine. Now, these machines, there's one or two of them about the country at the moment. By this time next year, they should be ubiquitous. They should be all over the place. Every large shop will have them. And and they'll just become part of what we're used to. In much the same way, remember the, the plastic bag tax. We all, well, most of us have our own bags that we bring shopping now. When it comes to the deposit return scheme, we'll just get used to it. We'll be bringing our empty bottles and cans back to the supermarkets, sticking them in the machines, and we'll be away in a hack. So I have got a kind of display model of a trailer that will be bringing down to the Abbey Leaks Manor Hotel uh, tomorrow. I have no doubt we'll be talking more and more about this over the coming years as there are so many listeners who say it is a case of back to the future. It's like repeating old policies, but sometimes they worked. Colin, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Will. I appreciate the chance to talk to you. Thank you. That's Colin O'Byrne from the Return for Change campaign.
in 15 minutes why Michael O'Leary will not be leaving his millions to his children and he has decided instead a 250-acre farm and a nice house. That is as much as they need. Interesting. He also says, and he quotes Warren Buffett, who's one of the world's greatest investors, you should leave your children enough so they can do anything, but not enough so they can do nothing. Nice problem to have, wouldn't it be? Anyway, on to an illness that I suspect you probably haven't heard of, and indeed I've struggled all morning even to pronounce this, but it's something a family in Edenderry are trying to come to terms with, trying to get on the learning curve about, and certainly need assistance in reaching a good outcome. Breda Rush Butler is sister of Jer Rush. Breda, good morning. Good morning, Will. Tell us what Jer has been diagnosed with. It is uh, inclusion body myositis, it's called. It's a very rare degenerative muscle disease with no cure or treatment to date. So what impact has it had on Jer? Jer got cancer in 1977 and the treatment at the time was so intense it led to his health being deteriorating since then. So it's mobility, he's lost his mobility. At the time in 2018 when he was diagnosed, his family was told it would take 15 years before he would lose his mobility. But the disease is so rapid that only four years later, Ger has lost his mobility. And how is Ger dealing with that? Because I imagine it must be a very difficult adjustment. It's very hard for him and his family, his wife and daughter. He hasn't left his home in over four years. And at the moment, he's in a nursing home and can't leave. Because he he needs two carers to look after Jerry's home, and as yes, that's not available for him. So, he's in the nursing home. Is it as a, in effect, a respite to try and get services back at his own place? Yes. And how originally long he does he have weeks. in the home, Breda? Originally, he was there for two weeks, and when he got there, he was told four weeks. Um. Then they said that he'd have to leave on last Saturday, but they've been back in contact again and they're going to leave him for another few weeks in the home. Yeah, I've had some experience of this myself and you you end up being bounced from different sections, from yes. community to, you know, the, the hospital discharge, to all, all sorts of different stools and you can fall between them very, very easily. So what's the obstacle to Jer coming home? He needs two carers. They're in contact with the HSD to try and get the two carers to Jer's home. He has no mobility whatsoever and he's confined to a specially designed wheelchair for him that suits his height and build and it has to support his head because due to muscle decay in his neck and shoulders also. So how many hours of care will these people need to give Jer? I am not sure at the moment, Will. Yeah, because I know it's obviously more than home help anyway. The home help is very limited. Yes. Yes. They have to be trained as well to use a hoist for to help Ger, to lift Ger, and his wife has to be trained on it as well. And 
have you heard from the HSE if it's only a matter of time until these people are allocated or is it up in the air as to whether they'll be granted at all? At the moment it's not it's very unsure because he has to now stay another four to five weeks in the nursing home until it's sorted but there's no guarantee in that space of time that he will have two carers. What happens at the end of that time if there aren't carers in the home? That's very unsure Will because Unfortunately, the nursing home needs the, the, the room for somebody else. Hmm. And he, the hospitals can't cope with Ger because Ger is not sick. He just has no mobility. So at the moment, we don't, we don't know what's going to happen at the end of that time. Who's on your side, Breda? For instance, are you getting help from the community nurse? There's a social worker dealing with Ger's wife at the moment. And, and the orthopaedic... So are you saying the orthopaedic uh, department is helping, are they? They were, yes. They have been. Has it been mentioned whether whether longer-term nursing home care is required? No. At the moment, he's just there because he it was in hospital and they needed this bed because there's a shortage of beds for people. So they had to put him into for respite. The nursing home is supposed to be for two weeks. Okay, well that's good because sometimes the decision is made. Well, somebody should go into a nursing home because we don't have enough supports in the community, and it's very yeah. often of premature. They, People go in before they need to. Yes, there's very shortage of staff at the moment with the HSE. So the they're trying to get carers to go to Jar, but unfortunately with shortages, that that's not available at the moment. Okay, so plan B, if you can't get these carers through the public system by the time he's discharged from the nursing home, you are trying to raise money because obviously there's going to be a a quality of life issue. You want the home to be as adaptable as possible to jurors' needs. So have you a target in mind for your fundraiser? At the moment... Um, his daughter Sinead, her friend Emma, has opened up the GoFundMe page. They set it at 15000 They're not sure what is going to happen long term with Ger. Um, at the moment, they were looking for a wheelchair accessible car because Ger's wheelchair can't fold up, so he has to be wheeled in. That would have been enabled him to get out and about, even for a daily newspaper that he used to love going to, hmm. to town for. But he can't do that at the moment. He can't go anywhere because he's, he can't be he can't be lifted into a car yeah. or out of the car. He needs to be wheeled in in his chair. Right. So, a modification like a, an extendable chair in a regular car that's not going to be enough. It has to be no. obviously a vehicle with a high roof with a modification at the back to allow the wheelchair to go in. Yeah, that's correct. You're, that's not cheap. No, and he's he's very limited in his house as to where he can go. But ideally he would, his bathroom is, is modified for his needs, but it's small. So for to have two carers in to look after Jerry in the bathroom, it's very, very small. Mm. Ideally, a room on his own with a wet room off it would be ideal, but that's long term down the road. At the moment, it's just to try and get him home and get him out and about even once a day. Has anybody talked to you about a home adaptation grant through the council? Yeah, that's, again, there's a waiting list, 
but it allows for modifications of a home to take place and the council will pay certainly a, a good portion of it if, for instance, you wanted to create the wet room, if you wanted to install handrails and other aids. It's called a home adaptation grant. Uh, does Ger have a primary medical cert? Yes, more than likely, yes, he would have. Yes, well, in that case, again, you can get through the revenue commissioners a refund of VAT and VRT on purchasing okay. uh, a modified car for his needs. And I know there was originally grants available, but the social worker has said that they're not available anymore. Oh. That's why this is up to go for me page. The grants are not there to give get an adapted car. Right. That's uh, that's going to raise the bill quite a bit then. So yes. your target is fifteen thousand euro. You've had to be fair, a lot of support so far. Yes. Thanks to everybody who donated. We really, really appreciate every cent that goes into it. Last time I checked, it was just under eight grand. Yes. Fantastic. This morning, it was 7885. So, if you know Ger, if you know the family, if you want to make a donation, hit GoFundMe. And what are you searching for, Breda? Help Ger Rush. Breda, will you keep in touch? I, I'm mindful there are probably people listening who have some experience in dealing with the HSE, in getting bounced from Billy to Jack, in trying to cut through some of the red tape, and they may be able to help. So keep us advised of your progress. I will, Will. Will. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. That's Breda Rush Butler. She's Ger's sister. And again, help Ger Rush. Just look it up on GoFundMe if you know the family and you'd like to help them out, as a lot of people already have. Nearly eight grand raised so far. Michael O'Leary plans to never retire, or at least he hopes he won't be retiring, assuming the board of Ryanair will keep him on for a contract beyond 2024 when his current deal expires. But whenever he expires, he says he won't be leaving his children a bundle of money. So what does he plan to do instead? Margaret Donnelly has interviewed him for the Irish Independent and Farming Independent. Margaret, good morning. Good morning, Will. Did you persuade him to leave you any money? <laughs> I didn't get that far. <laughs> oh, I'm afraid not. No, but um, he was a very personable person to interview um, on Friday in the Ryanair offices. And it's obviously done ahead of the Jigginstown sale um, of Angus cattle that he holds every year. And it's back running in person this year on the farm out in Westmead on April the 16th. And um, at the sale, they're going to have uh, 40 bulls and around 25 young heifers for sale as well. So it's a hugely popular event. And yeah, he wanted to just do a little bit of promotion around that. So yeah, we sat down and chatted about a range of things. You see, outside farming circles, we tend to think of Michael O'Leary only as the man in Ryanair who's pulling all the stunts and selling the cheap seats and so on. But mm-hmm. he talks to you about his love of the land. Yes, absolutely. And his grandparents originally from Cork and they moved, they were dairy farmers and moved actually into the bloodstock side of things. And he himself grew up um, just outside or in Mullingar. And he's been farming at Jigginstown for around 30 years now. And he's, look, he's built up, it's over six different farms and he has about 1,900 acres and he's bought around 700 of that in the last couple of years for tillage alone. And they 
um, the, the, sorry, he has a run the pedigree herd of Angus as well on the farm, and it's just always been Angus, and he really likes them and says they're good for calving, and they've become a premium product. So he thanked um, Burger King for a lot of their advertising around right. the Angus breed and stuff. And he has hopes, at least, that his children will take land and pursue farming, and it looks like his eldest is going to do just that. Yeah, we, we chatted about the family and obviously he has the interest in farming and but says, look, he's a weekend farmer. He's not on the farm as such Monday to Friday actually doing things. But at the weekends, he enjoys nothing more than going out and checking the cattle and checking the horses. And I asked him, yeah, do any of his young family show an interest in farming? And he says, they do. One of his sons is quite interested in, in the cattle and in the breeding and likes watching it and stuff when he's there. And one of his daughter, his daughter as well, very interested in the mares and the equine side of things. So, um, yeah, it, it seems they are quite involved and that they're not totally dismissive of farming. And he hopes they'll all get a green search in time and that he plans on leaving them 200 or 250 acres. And as he said, what they do with it then is up to them, whether they set it or sell it or farm it. But he's hopeful that they take a, continue to take an interest in farming. Now, I know the Ryanair share price bounces around a fair bit, but he's worth, give or take, about a billion euro. So he's not planning to give all of it to his children. Does he explain why? Well, he explained that the Warren Buffett maxim of give them enough to do something with, but not that they, you know, don't have to do anything said more articulately than I did just there now but that's the plan to give them something give them some land some property and it's there and it's a good start for them in life but not necessarily to give them bundles of money he said it's, it just feels it's a good discipline and yeah it won't be left empty handed by any means and did he suggest where his fortune will go then he didn't we didn't get into that so he didn't divulge what he was going to do with any of the actual um, the money that he might mm. have I know he's very kind to some of the sports clubs in the area maybe they should knock on the door again with bigger ambitions. Yeah. He's not going to retire anytime soon either. So you mentioned the weekend farming, but the day mm-hmm. job is obviously with Ryanair and the structure of the group has changed a bit recently. And for those not watching closely, he, he's CEO of the group, but there's actually somebody in charge of Ryanair and then somebody in charge of uh, the, the other sub-brands. That's right. There's a number of key managers who are being brought up through the ranks. And, you know, he mentioned that as well, that, you know, he doesn't, he, he says he probably or he hopes to work, stay working in Ryanair for the next five or 10 years, but not work as hard as he's done over the last 30 or so years, but still be involved. So I asked him, you know, would he retire? And he said, certainly not. And my question was, you know, would you retire to go full time farming? you know, take the foot off the pedal completely. But he said no. He said he couldn't imagine retiring. He wouldn't want to retire. He just, no, it's it's not in him. And when you meet him, you get that, just that energy and drive there. Mm. That, um, you know, he's the type of person, I imagine, who enjoys working and likes to work and is good at it. Absolutely. But he's 61, so that frenetic zeal that he's had for the last 30 years, at, at, at some point, I suppose, he might not pitch the hammock, but he might take it out of fifth gear and, and go down to a lower speed. Looking to the market then and what we as air travellers should expect over the coming months, he did give you some insight into pricing. Yeah, so pricing should stay relatively the same for the moment. But he said the peak summer months, we can expect, you know, the price of our seats to rise by about 5 to 10 percent. Nothing dramatic, nothing like 50 or 60 percent, anything like that. But from forward bookings, they're seeing that he said it himself. He thinks people are fed up after two years, fed up of working from home, fed up of being on Zoom calls, fed up of all those things. 
and want to get away again. So, you know, the peak summer months, May, June, or June, July, August, kind of, yeah. Bring it on, bring it on. Indeed. A little bit, but yeah, we all want to get away, it seems, this summer. All right, well, at least they're not steep increases. Margaret, thank you very much. The full article is in the Farming Independent, if anybody wishes to read it. Thanks for taking our call. Margaret Donnelly, who's from Moneygall, by the way. That's where we leave the programme today. Thank you, Sinead, and thank you, Kira, for doing all the hard work. Thank you for listening. Carl is next with the Afternoon Show. Good morning. Midlands Today on Midlands 183 with Bus Erin. Get better value using the TFI Go app for the Bus Erin at Lone Town Services. See transportforireland.ie.